I collect baseball cards. It's a fairly new hobby for me. I started collecting just a few years ago along with my son. Unlike my son, I don't collect every card that comes my way. I collect Nolan Ryan because I became a fan of his when, I, when he began pitching for the Astros while I lived in Houston. I collect these cards just for fun. There are other folks, however, who collect baseball cards as a serious investment. That's when you get into the question of what something is worth. I have a 1969 Nolan Ryan Mets card. It's in good condition, but the photo is slightly off-center, and so that means it's worth about $35. If it were in mint condition and the photo were centered, it'd be worth about $250. A Nolan Ryan rookie card is worth over $1,000. Now, you might be thinking, you're kidding for a bit of cardboard that came from a chewing gum pack, but that's nothing. A few years ago, a 1909 Honus Wagner card sold for $2.8 million. Is it worth it? Would you pay that for it? Even if you had the money? I know I wouldn't. A baseball card just isn't worth that much to me. What is worth it? What is worth more than anything to you, to me, to us? Jesus looks at that question today in today's Matthew passage. He's describing the kingdom of God or the reign of God. In Matthew, he uses the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, that takes care of any concerns that Matthew's audience, Jewish Christians, would have with using the name of God. In all of these kingdom parables, Jesus assumes the kingdom of God is something that can be perceived and experienced as a present reality, not just something to look forward to in the future. Each of these kingdom parables is worth its own sermon. This morning I want to focus on just two of them. Jesus told the second two kingdom parables to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which someone found and hid. And from his joy, he goes and sells all as much as he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a person on a journey seeking fine pearls. And finding one valuable pearl, he goes and sells all as much as he has and buys it. The owner of the field has hidden a treasure not uncommon in those days, and someone else has found it. The person who found it wasn't looking for it. He stumbled upon it unexpectedly. He's overcome by his good fortune and joyfully sells everything he has to buy the whole field and secure that treasure. In the pearl parable, the person is deliberately searching far and wide for a fine pearl. He finds it, and like the first man, he liquidates all his assets so he can buy that sought-after pearl. The two characters make their discoveries as a result of entirely different circumstances, but once they've found that valuable object, the treasure and the pearl, it becomes their overriding concern, crowding out all other concerns. 
Neither one of them has a fleeting second thought about passing up the opportunity. Neither one of them pauses to calculate the risks, to do a cost-benefit analysis, or consult with his investment advisor. This, says Jesus, is what the kingdom of God is like. It is worth everything. Many people will use these parables to talk about the cost of discipleship, and that's in there. That's worth exploring, but only after we talk about something else, the overwhelming joy and the commitment that this kind of joy engenders. This is not a parable about sacrifice as much as it's a parable about joy. These men give up everything because what they get is worth everything to them. What is it about the kingdom of God that is worth everything? I had some insights into this earlier this month when I was in San Antonio. I went to San Antonio with a colleague from Presbytery, Rich Gantenbein, the pastor of St. Andrew Presbyterian Church in Sonoma. He and I have been invited to lead the annual Presbytery Retreat at Westminster Woods this coming November. And the goal is sharing with the rest of the Presbytery how social scientist Brene Brown's research might impact leaders as they look at adaptive change, adaptive change in congregations. This past year, our small groups of clergy read Daring Greatly, one of Brown's books, and both Rich and I were sufficiently taken with it that we used it in our congregations in various ways. So that's why Rich and I were the ones asked to lead the Presbytery Retreat and to go to San Antonio for Brown's national training where folks learn to teach groups about her research. That, I think, and the fact that I've never been to a Westminster Woods Presbytery Retreat and the Presbytery exec figured that if he asked me to co-lead it, I might show up for one. <laughs> so that explains how I ended up in San Antonio a couple of weeks ago, studying shame, worthiness, courage, and vulnerability. Brown began her research trying to understand what makes certain people more resilient and whole, a quality she calls wholeheartedness. She concluded that what most blocks wholeheartedness is shame. Shame at its heart is fear of disconnection. We're all hardwired for con connection, and so we fear disconnection. Shame is what whispers, if you know the truth about me, you'll reject me. It's that feeling that we're not enough, thin enough, rich enough, young enough, pretty enough, powerful enough, smart enough, perfect enough, you fill in the blank. And shame is what we perpetuate whenever we communicate to others that they aren't enough, which leads to all sorts of bad behavior. Bullying, for example, which Brown says isn't a school problem, it's a national pastime. Another expert says there's no record of a violent or cruel action committed other than as a reaction to shame or humiliation. We all have shame. We all worry at one point or another, if not most of the time, that I'm not good enough. So we hide who we really are, 
But in order for connection to happen, true connection, we have to let ourselves be seen. Brown discovered that what wholehearted people have in common is courage, specifically the ordinary courage to be seen, to show up, even though we're imperfect. Wholehearted people believe that what makes them vulnerable makes them beautiful. They don't talk about vulnerability being easy or comfortable, just necessary. They are kind to themselves because they know that we can't practice compassion with other people if we can't first treat ourselves kindly. They are willing to let go of what they think they should be in order to be what they are, which is essential for connection, true connection with others. Real connection flows from authenticity. So in their vulnerability, wholehearted people are willing to say, I love you, first. They're willing to do things where there are no guarantees. They're willing to breathe through, waiting for the doctor to call with the results from the mammogram. They're willing to invest in a relationship that may or may not work out. Wholehearted people, Brown found, also have a strong sense of love and belonging. And this was the surprise the one variable that separated people who have a strong sense of love and belonging from people who struggle for it was that people who have a strong sense of love and belonging believe they're worthy of love and belonging. That's it. They believe they're worthy. And here's the other surprise. While all of us struggle with vulnerability, it also appears that vulnerability is the birthplace of joy and creativity, and belonging and love. When we numb ourselves to vulnerability, when we numb our grief or our shame or our disappointment, we also numb much of the joy and the gratitude and the happiness we might feel. We live in a culture that does a lot of numbing. The problem is, Brown says, we can't selectively numb emotions. She says we cannot say, here's the bad stuff, here's grief, Here's shame. Here's disappointment. I don't want to feel these. I'm going to have a couple of beers and eat a banana nut muffin. I don't want to feel these. You can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other emotions. Now, what does all this have to do with the kingdom of God? What I figured out in San Antonio is that Brown's research, hard science, is a secular repackaging of the good news of the gospel. Her research just restates what Jesus said again and again, and especially what Jesus said about life lived in the kingdom of God. In a wonderful conversation that Rich and I had with Brown at the San Antonio airport while we were waiting for our flight to San Francisco, she told us that her friends in the Episcopal Church tell her, Brene didn't say that. Jesus said that. Jesus said and modeled and taught, love each other even when it's hard, even when it makes you vulnerable, even when it's a risk. Include people, connect with people, even when they aren't like you, even when they scare you. Practice empathy and compassion even when your first impulse is fight or flight, even when revenge is so much more attractive than understanding. 
Treat everyone you encounter like the children of God that they are. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Know in your bones that you are enough, that God knows you and loves you and created you to be worthy, to be enough. Live as though you are enough and as though everybody else is too. Stick to your values even when it's hard, even when it gets you in trouble. Not to earn God's love or prove you're perfect, that's the folly of the Pharisees, but in response to the gracious and unconditional love of God that you already have. You'll be afraid. It will be hard. You will be hurt. But this life, this wholehearted life, and the world you help create by living it are so much better, so much truer, so much holier, that it will be worth it. It will be worth it. It will be worth everything, says Jesus. It will be worth the extravagant investment of your heart and soul and everything else, all you possess. And the result is not a moaning and groaning sense of sacrifice, but joy, joy and authenticity, connection, creativity, peace, and freedom, freedom from the bondage of shame and perfectionism and numbing for you and for everyone else. What would you give for that? Would you, for example, consider practicing living toward wholeheartedness? Would you begin to look at the way shame manages us if we don't manage our shame? It wouldn't be easy. It wouldn't be pain-free. It'd be more of a journey than a destination. It'd be more of a practice and a path than an accomplishment. The early Christians called it the way. I collect baseball cards of one other player, Oral Hershiser. I'd collect Jackie Robinson cards, too, if I could afford them, but I can't. But maybe Oral Hershiser is a better example of the ordinary courage that Brene Brown writes about. Hershiser was a skinny right-handed pitcher who brought the Dodgers to the World Series championship in 1988. Now, the fact that he played for the Dodgers means I get to practice being a good Samaritan, seeing everyone as my neighbor, even one of the Dodgers. Hershiser was a Presbyterian. He once sang the doxology on the Johnny Carson show. Norman Corwin tells a story about watching a Dodgers game on TV where Hershiser threw a fastball that hit the batter. The camera was on a close-up of Hershiser, and Corwin could read his lips as Hershiser mouthed, I'm sorry. The batter, taking first base, nodded to the pitcher in a friendly way, and the game went on. Corwin writes, just two words, and I felt better about Hershiser and the batter and the game all at once. It was only common courtesy, but it made an impression striking enough for me to remember after many summers. Corwin concludes, good can be as communicable as evil. Fresh from San Antonio, this story says even more to me. If you've ever seen a batter hit, be hit by a pitch, or if 
you've ever been hit by a pitch, you know this isn't usually how it goes. Usually the pitcher says nothing. Often the batter responds with anger or even threats. There are times when the bench empties and the team takes to the field to get revenge on the pitcher. What Hershiser did was more than common courtesy. He admitted he'd made a mistake. It was an accident, but he hurt someone. That admission takes courage. It takes vulnerability. And the batter accepted the apology. That, too, is courageous. It means giving up the anger, giving up the power of victimhood. What would the world look like if we practiced this simple example of vulnerability, of working our way through shame with courage and compassion? Reality TV has turned shame into entertainment. What if we practiced a different reality, the kingdom of God reality, in our politics, in international relationships, in the Ukraine and the Middle East, with the children attempting to cross the border, in our care of the planet, in our churches, in our businesses and in economics and in the workplace, in marriages, and families. What would that be worth to you? Please pray with me.